Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect Magazine, and in this episode of the Prospect Podcast, we're going to be talking about nuclear energy and the place it has in the UK's energy mix. After the discovery of nuclear power generation alongside the invention of nuclear weapons in the mid-20th century, the technology went somewhat out of favour and in recent decades there has been far less investment in nuclear power plants in this country. Now that seems to be changing. With the aim of shoring up the UK's energy security following Russia's war in Ukraine, the government is backing a £20 billion investment in a new nuclear power plant at Sizewell Sea. And ministers are said to be looking closely at preparing a generation of small modular reactors. And along the way, something remarkable has happened. Nuclear energy, once seen almost universally by green campaigners as a toxic and dangerous energy source, is now championed by some environmentalists as a key part of the green transition away from oil and gas. To talk about all this, I'm delighted to be joined by Bryony Worthington, who is a crossbench peer in the House of Lords and has spent her career in conservation, energy and climate change issues. And also by Simon Evans, who is deputy editor and senior policy editor at Carbon Brief. And if you're ever on Twitter looking to follow a climate conference, he's your man because of his encyclopedic knowledge about all things energy policy. So let's start with a look at the place nuclear energy has in the UK's energy mix today. Simon, would you be able to give us a sense of how much energy nuclear delivers for the UK today compared to other energy sources such as renewables and oil and gas? Yes, so nuclear energy has in the UK a declining role in in supplying electricity at the moment. Back in in the year 2000, it supplied about 100 terawatt hours of electricity to the UK, which is getting on for nearly a third of current electricity demand. That's roughly halved over over the you know the last two decades as older power stations have closed, and we're now down to about forty five terawatt hours, about fifteen percent of current UK electricity demand. And how does that kind of compare to other countries in Europe, comparable economies? Do we have a larger or smaller share coming from of energy coming from nuclear at the moment? So I mean, the UK guess is is kind of middling. You know, you look at obviously countries like like France, which has a very significant share of its electricity coming from nuclear, although their their nuclear generation is also in decline like for similar reasons, ultimately, that you know they built a large fleet of nuclear power plants in the 1970s and 1980s, and, and some of the older ones are starting to close, and they've had maintenance issues as well. But they still have a significant share from nuclear. 
somewhere like Germany um, you know, had once a relatively significant fleet of nuclear power plants, but that's being phased out as a deliberate policy choice. So, you know, I guess the UK is, is one of the relatively small number of countries that still has a, a significant role for nuclear and indeed, you know, government support for keeping that role going into the future. And Bryony, you've been working in this sector for many years. You've actually written a great piece in the current issue of Prospectus Out about your journey, as it were, with nuclear from campaigning against it in the 90s to now being more supportive. Can you give us a sense of of the UK's track record on nuclear over these years and how its relationship with nuclear power has changed? Yeah, well, the UK was one of the first countries in the world to start harnessing the splitting of the atom for, for domestic and uh, commercial reasons. And Calder Hall was the first uh, large-scale commercial reactor that was switched onto the grid back in the 1950s. And we had uh, substantial national labs and research programmes, and we we innovated into lots of different types of reactor designs. Um, we've still got some of our gas-cooled reactors operating today, not more than 40 or 50 years since they were switched on. Uh, but we also then uh, decided to uh, adopt a pressurised water reactor system, and that was built in Sizewell. And that, that's a very different model. And PWRs, or pressurised water reactors, uh, started to dominate um, and take over as the sort of reactor of choice. But what's happening now is that people are realising that nuclear can be a lot more diverse than just those pressurised water reactors. And so there's a sort of renaissance of interest in different mm-hmm. types of reactors. And the UK is well-placed to play its part in that. We've got, still got the vestiges of some great nuclear researchers. We've got the National, Labor- National Nuclear Laboratory. And uh, we've got a substantial interest in it from, from government. So I'm hoping that we'll sort of see a new phase of, mm-hmm. of interest and the development of different types of reactors that will be beneficial for our economy, but also for export. It's really interesting because I think people often think of nuclear power as, as one technology. Mm. You're saying there's actually a lot of different technologies within the nuclear sector. Is that, was that the thing that changed your mind about the benefit nuclear could have? Yeah, it was actually. And it was, it was quite odd. I was getting ready to do my maiden speech in, in the House of Lords and Fukushima uh, Daiichi uh, occurred. And, and I remember thinking, well, hang on, there were, about, there were over 10 reactors on that coastline all hit with this horrendous tsunami, which caused a huge loss of life. Um, but only one of them uh, actually was seen to go critical and had an, a, an industrial accident. So I started looking into why that was, and it turns out that there is a vast diversity of the way that reactors can be built and the way that they're operated. Some are more safe than others. And so I became really interested in reactor designs that didn't have water as okay. their coolant. Because if you don't have water, you don't have the risk of flashing into hydrogen, and you don't have the risk of hydrogen explosions. And at the moment, everyone's talking about hydrogen like it's the great saviour, but hydrogen is extraordinarily explosive, and therefore water and reactors might not be the best way of going forward. That's also very interesting because, I mean, we can you know, maybe come back to this later if we have time, but that Fukushima moment was very important in countries like Germany in kind of solidifying uh, opinion against nuclear. People were very worried about the threat of tsunamis, extreme weather, natural disasters, you know, the risk that they could pose to to nuclear uh, yeah, power but plants let's, in the future. Yeah, let's be honest, though, it was a political decision by Germany and Fukushima just happened to provide the trigger. Yeah. I mean, there, there was no safety concerns with yeah. their reactors. So a quick kind of fact check for both of you, just a quick question. Is that fear 
about the risk of extreme weather, tsunamis, snoop reactors, is that a valid fear or is that, is it, is it not the most important one, Brian Eaton first? I think it's completely overblown. And there are far, far more regular, more deadly industrial accidents that we just tolerate and we never look at with any degree of, of the same degree of care and attention as we do with nuclear. We are, we are a nuclear-phobic society at the moment, by and large, and that's mainly done due to lack of understanding of the nature of the risk. Yeah, OK. Simon, give you a chance to, to chip in on those points. Is the concern about those risks valid? And also, what do you think about Bryony's argument about the many technologies within nuclear and the potential that now holds? Yeah, I mean, I think if you stack up the evidence on all of the different ways to generate electricity, I mean, there basically isn't a risk-free way of doing it. But overwhelmingly, the greatest risks come from, you know, fossil fuel-related air pollution and climate impacts. And in contrast, you know, nuclear, along with renewables, are extremely safe. Um, you know, really, in, you know, in terms of the different technologies available, what this, you know, what this all comes down to is costs and deliverability um, and the time scales and the time pressure that we're under as a result of you know, the climate targets that we need to meet to, to limit warming to safe levels. So I think that there absolutely could be a role for nuclear to play in, in, in meeting those targets. And the question is, can nuclear live up to those hopes and expectations? And, you know, can it deliver at, at the, the sort of low costs that will be, make it competitive to fit in with a grid which is overwhelmingly going to be powered by renewables but that doesn't mean that there can't be a really important role for, for nuclear as well. Mm-hmm. So your answer to that question you sort of posed to us is that yes nuclear does have a place is that right? It can have a place it's, a, it's really a you know there's a political choice and there's a and then there's a kind of can nuclear deliver question mark you know nuclear let's be honest has not had a great record in terms of delivering on time and on budget and I know that there are hopes that some of the new sort of designs new t- versions of, of nuclear can can deliver against that and I, i'm sure Bryony can give us a chapter on verse on how how that might come about but we know we know where we stand now and the large kind of hinkley c sizewell c type reactors are expensive and and so to build and so again that that's not to say they can't play a, a role in the mix we we will need a diversity of sources and we can't just rely on wind and solar alone even though they're very cheap because you know that's not gonna that's not a way to make a reliable grid so we will need some expensive solutions and nuclear could be part of that. Bryony I can see that you had something you maybe wanted to say there in response to that point about nuclear not having delivered do you agree? Well I, I think it's just a part of this equating nuclear with one technology the EPR which is the one that's being built at Hinkley and has been built in France and uh, in Finland has been really slow and it was the first of a kind and it's a ridiculously large reactor and would I have chosen that design? Probably not but it, that's a very Eurocentric view to think that's the only version of nuclear that's being built today Koreans are building reactors on time and on budget. The Chinese are building reactors on time and on budget. And actually, where do we need most nuclear? It's in Asia. Europe is rapidly decarbonizing its grid. Most developing countries are going to be able to do renewables very cheaply. But where you have huge industrialized economies running on coal, you really want them to build nuclear. And the good news is is that they are doing that. So I, I think the proof is there, if you look for it, that this can work. And will it work in the future? I think it is all about those countries deciding to do this in a series build, selecting one and doing it multiple times to bring the costs down, 
And once they decide to do that, then there will be a great harmony between nuclear and renewables, which will lead to a fully decarbonised grid. What does on time and on budget look like in those contexts? How long does it take to ideally get a nuclear power station up and running? So there's two stages. There's the planning and then there's the actual building. And they can take a long time depending on the regime you're operating under. The build time, I think the average is seven years. Planning time, I think you've got to add on probably to get reactors through licensing another five to seven years. So it's not a solution for this decade, Mm -hmm. but this isn't a fight for a single decade. We're going to be needing to have vast amounts of decarbonised energy right to the end of the century and beyond to both make us resilient against the climate impacts that are already happening and to help us help human development. Mm -hmm. We're still in a world where lots of people have no access to energy. And we need lots of abundant, safe, clean energy. So there's not like a cliff edge at the end of 2030 where you stop worrying. Uh, So I'm interested in solutions that will take us through to the end of the century. Simon, what do you think about that? The possibility for nuclear in Asia and those economies that need to decarbonise the most? I mean, it's absolutely the case that if you look at where nuclear development's happening at the moment, it is overwhelmingly in Asia, particularly in China, but there's, there's... also renewed interest, I believe, in South Korea, as Bryony says. I mean, I don't think, I think fundamentally we agree. Um, We're in this situation where we desperately need as much low carbon energy as we can possibly get our hands on in the quickest time possible. You know, in in, in the UK context, you know, we've got this ambitious target of fully decarbonised grid by 2035. And is nuclear, you know, going to provide a bigger part of the answer to that question probably not but does that mean it's not part of the picture in you know in the 2050 2100 time scale absolutely not and also crucially to you know to distinguish between places like the uk which have have not been building nuclear recently that applies to most most western countries um compared to you know those rapidly growing economies in asia where that their energy demand is growing so quickly you know, the world as a whole, as I said, needs all of the all of the solutions that get, can get its hands on them. We certainly don't have the luxury of ruling things out. Yep, I think we're violently agreeing on that point. Nor do we have the luxury of shutting existing reactors down early, really. But one thing I wanted to mention, and maybe Simon, I'd love your thoughts on this, is that nuclear actually has such a variety of uses. One one use case is when you build a high temperature reactor. So the gas cooled reactors that the UK still operates and we were in the forefront of developing, there's a renewed interest in in those reactors because they produce steam at a very high temperature. The PWRs are quite low temperature. And they can then be used to actually take out the coal boilers and reuse coal turbines and grid connections and sites in a sort of repowering process. And why I'm excited about this is that China has just commissioned its first HTR, its high temperature reactor. They've just announced they're gonna, I think, build three or four more. And if China decides to do a rapid replacement of coal boilers into their newer coal fleet with an intelligent source of heat, mm-hmm. then we do stand a chance of being you know, rapidly moving away from our coal dependency, even as we build out renewables, which is absolutely necessary, and China's doing a huge amount on renewables, it is still difficult to get to a 24-7 grid mm-hmm. um, with just variable renewables alone. And they've, done, they've maxed out the hydro, mm-hmm. and they don't really have a great geothermal resource, so if they can combine rapid replacement of coal with nuclear in a high temperature reactor, that's what keeps, gives me optimism, really. Does that give you optimism, Simon? Is that something that you've been following? 
I haven't I haven't followed the developments in China relating to high temperature reactors, but we have followed the you know situation in China with regards to coal and, and renewables. And what's really interesting about what they're doing at the moment is they're they're building renewables at a pace which is really quite difficult to understand and quite difficult to grasp. They're building more renewables than basically the rest of the world put together, and they're they're on track to I think double their renewable capacity within the current five-year plan, which is 2021 to 2025. So it's absolutely staggering pace for development. And that might just about be enough to kind of peak their emissions from the power sector. But obviously, we can't just peak emissions if we want to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees. We need to rapidly cut emissions. And so the other part of the picture in China is that they are still building coal-fired power stations. And what they're saying, you know, a a lot of people don't understand that just because they're building more coal-fired power stations doesn't mean they're going to generate more electricity from coal. But they are specifically building those power plants to balance out the peaks and troughs in, in wind and solar output. They're t- talking about needing those to balance the grid. And so if there is a sort of, you know, kind of a drop-in solution that Brian is talking about, then obviously that is not super interesting because China has half of the world's coal plants. It's basically the only place in the world that's still building new coal plants. So... They absolutely need to deal with that if, if the world as a whole is going to meet climate targets. I think the, the other thing that's worth mentioning, Brian, I don't know if you have thoughts on this as well, is about high temperature reactors and, and hydrogen. Obviously, hydrogen is a big part of getting to net zero, even if it's like a relatively small part of the energy mix, if you like. You know, it's, it's kind of a, an important piece of the puzzle. And, and one of the things that people have talked about in the UK context is whether um, you know, so there's this idea, if you have effectively a, a renewables-dominated grid, then that could potentially make it tricky to fit in a very large nuclear reactor because effectively you don't want, if you build a Sizewell C, for example, you don't want to be turning it on and off, even though it's technically capable of doing that. Economically, it doesn't really make sense. But what do you do then if it's really windy and demand isn't sufficient to actually require that, you know, that electri- extra electricity generation? And the answer is, can you, you know, can you put some uh, electrolysis into the mix? And where nuclear comes into that is that you can use high temperature electrolysis, which is much more efficient in terms of the energy required to split the water into hydrogen and oxygen. And so you could co-locate those electrolyzers with, say, Sizewell or any other, or, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, a a gas called high temperature reactor. I think this is kind of to an extent, to an extent, it's speculative, but it, it's certainly a really interesting prospect. Yeah, no, I think that is really exciting. And I mean, grid, grid balancing is going to be the challenge once you get into high penetration renewables. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a number of things that can be done, including transmission. So subsea cabling, interconnecting between markets mm-hmm. is a demonstrated way of doing this. The UK is at the forefront of that. We've got this wonderful mm-hmm. connector now into Norway, which means Norway's hydro dams almost act as a battery for us. And so, so there are definite ways of distributing electrons when there's too many of them. I think it's interesting that everyone always picks on nuclear and says, oh, we, you know, how are you going to cope? Well, how does another wind farm cope? You know, if the wind is blowing, then it's going to be blowing everywhere, likely, and you have wind farms competing with each other. And the thing about renewables is that once you stack them on top of each other, you get a diminishing return because mm-hmm. you're all competing with the same time period. So everybody needs a system for moving electrons around. I think interconnection is going to be a big part of that. But I also think, as Simon said, we will be using some conversion into chemical stores like hydrogen and ammonia. But I would actually say there's another system, which is you just build thermal stores. So you can put in salt banks 
where you use the electricity to heat up the salts and they, they're very good and very efficient mm -hmm. in retaining heat. So you don't actually always need to go through the hydrogen cycle. And actually one way of a step towards repowering coal is that you put in these thermal salt stores to take out the coal boilers first and then you wait for your reactor to come along or your geothermal or whatever else it is that's going to provide you with the heat in a two-stage process. So there are lots of technical solutions to mm -hmm. making sure we've got energy when we need it. And and we haven't even talked about on the demand side where sure. once you get electric vehicles on the, on the system and electric vehicles act as a bank of batteries that can be activated when the, when the electricity is at high production, the grid just gets much more dynamic and more flexible. Yeah, okay. Um, just one question about the sort of interconnectedness. Big, you know, drivers of this conversation again this year has been energy security and the idea that we need to, um, almost energy sovereignty, um, generate our own energy, not be relying on other states. That interconnectedness point feels like the opposite, that in a way that you're connecting with, with friendly states to act as batteries. Is that a tension there? Yeah, I don't know if someone wants to come in. I... I Energy sovereignty is a terrible idea if you're trying to solve climate change. It just means more expense and more redundancy. And energy solidarity is what we should be doing. And in fact, you know, that is, that is really what's happening on a commercial level. Markets are seeing the value of connecting because it reduces costs for everybody. Now, it levels up. So I know Norwegian bill payers aren't so delighted that some of their cheap hydro is ending up in our market. But overall, we all benefit from having that that flexibility. Um, but energy sovereignty, I think, will set back the cause of climate change. And, and we really ought to be thinking about energy solidarity. Simon, do you want to respond to that? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting in the context of this energy crisis and suddenly energy security is in vogue again. And in a way, you know, had we had, if we'd had this crisis like five years ago, you know, even even five years ago, the, you know, the costs of renewables hadn't fallen quite so dramatically as now. And I think that, you know, the, the kind of political response might have been a different one. But where we are now, all of the kind of drivers point in the same direction. You know, even the energy security angle kind of does point towards low carbon because that tends to be domestic, whether it's clear, whether it's renewables. Those are, you know, energy generating resources that we can locate in the UK as opposed to you know, relying on, on, you know, whether it's you know, gas or oil that we have to increasingly import as, as the North Sea dries up. Just one, one extra thought on, on the, the kind of so sovereignty versus solidarity question. I mean, I think that's kind of at a macro level, you know, between countries, you know, it makes sense. And, it, you know, it, it is more efficient if we link up together. I and mean, that's why we've built lots of interconnectors, you know, increasingly large numbers of interconnectors with, with the continent and with Norway. Um, and so on, that, you know, because it is a cost saving that benefits everyone. And actually, the same applies if you, you know, if you look at the arguments around backup for wind and solar and the need to balance them out. Some people say, well, an individual wind farm ought to be providing, you know, some, some sort of other resource to kind of firm up its output. So when it isn't windy, there's a battery or a gas power, power plant or whatever it might be. But it, it that falls apart for exactly the same reason that trying to only provide power based in the UK and ignoring the potential for imports. It just doesn't make up make sense economically. It's much more sensible to to balance the energy system at the system level. That's the most efficient way to do it. Yeah, and, and we already all pay for that, right? It's that's why we have grid charges and mm -hmm. and distribution charges to make sure that we can get the power to where it's needed to be. 
So I, I would agree with Simon. I don't. I don't think you should just treat technologies separately. They've definitely got different attributes, but the thing that annoys me, I think, is that when it comes to comparing of costs, uh, it's annoying that for the renewables gang to always have to answer the question of well, what about intermittency costs? But equally for nuclear, it's really annoying to have that 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 levied at nuclear when it's an asset that will be there for over 60 years and because of the way that we treat capital and we apply a discount rate to that capital the last 20 odd years or more of that asset are discounted to zero so they're not they don't appear on the balance sheet and for me because this is an intergenerational challenge you've got to have you've got to price in that benefit you get from a long lived asset that's going to be there reliably and so just comparing you know, there's a temptation to just compare subsidy levels, but those subsidies are very different. You're buying different things with those subsidies, so I get a bit annoyed about the cost conversation. Plus, whenever did climate campaigners ever say, oh, cost is our, my biggest priority? We either want to save humanity or we don't. And if we'd said cost was our primary goal, we'd never have started out on our wind subsidies or our solar subsidies. So I, I think this is a slightly rigged game. When all you've got to say is, oh, it costs too much, I don't think that's a really fair criticism. One of the, if we can sort of come back to the specifics of what's going to happen in the UK now, we've got this investment at Sizeable C, which you might remind me what kind of power plant that is again. It's That's, another PWR, which so is really, oh, an EPR, it's a European pressurised reactor, yeah. a huge cathedral-like reactor. Okay, and then there's the, op- maybe not the opposite, but the something else that we hear a lot about now are these small modular reactors, which I know the ministers are talking at the moment about how they will invest in those as well. And those are those kind of reactors are often put forward as a solution to this time question that they're quicker to get going and to bring energy into the grid. I would love to hear thoughts from both of you about about the role that these SMRs will play and whether they do in fact answer that question of time, the time lag or not. Maybe Simon, do you want to come in first? Yeah, so... I mean, I think that we, it's really important on this kind of diversity of different nuclear technologies point to recognise that SMRs are not just one thing either. And actually, the, one, the ones that are most commonly referred to in, in the context of the UK are the Rolls-Royce SMRs, which are actually not, neither that small nor that different to the existing PWRs that Brian has been talking about. They're just basically small, smaller versions of that that they hope to be able to roll off a, a production line. Um, and, you know, Rolls-Royce are saying sort of ambitiously they they hoped that if the government bungs them a load of money before they've got regulatory approval, by the way, then they'll be able to build a first one by 2029. Um, so, we're, you know, we'll see how that conversation plays out. I think it's actually worth mentioning as well in terms of investment. We don't yet have a confirmation of, of you know, like a final investment decision in size C. That's you know, various of the steps that need to happen to get to that place have taken place. You know, the government now kind of officially given Sizewell, Sizewell Consortium the right to kind of claim one of these new style um, sort of contracts, a regulated asset-based contract. But we don't yet have the kind of external private investors coming forward to put their money into that project. And then coming back to the small nuclear reactors, you know, there's just a, you know, a wide diversity of alternative technologies, which I'm sure Bryony is much better place to talk about than, than me. But I think if you talk to nuclear advocates, that's where they kind of see the excitement, the potential for lower costs and, you know, more interesting developments compared to the Rolls-Royce design. 
Yeah, there's a lot of potential options on the table for the UK at the moment. I think we will get the EPR away. I think I think we'll get size away, but we won't build any more like that at that scale. And so then the question is, what comes after? And there are some readily available reactors that are perhaps more easy to build more rapidly that we could choose to do. And uh, I know that there's been talk of the GE reactor, for example, that's just been selected in Ontario in Canada. We haven't talked about Canada, but Ontario is another example of of a, a province that's really very successfully decarbonised its grid. What's a GE reactor? So General Electric okay. have got a reactor, right. which is kind of mid-scale size. Um, personally, I, the perfect size for a nuclear reactor is probably around 500 megawatts, which is the right size to replace a coal unit. And we seem to have standardised around 500 megawatts as a unit for thermal plant, and we need to rapidly replace them. So I think that's likely to emerge as the right unit size. But the smaller ones could also have a benefit, especially if you're talking about specific use cases where they're maybe off-grid or they're replaced. perhaps they're going to be built into like large-scale ships could be running on smaller re- nuclear reactors. I know there's a renewed interest in, in that. There is one. There was one commercial nuclear-powered ship that the US built decades ago, so it's possible. So there's yeah, there's lots of opportunities. My my interest though is really in us is in us preserving our expertise in in high-temperature reactors. So I'd love us to see to see us settle on a, a design that uses that, and that opens up this hydrogen question and this rapid coal replacement opportunity, and it takes into the gas cooled, which is I believe inherently safer than than water cooled. Mm-hmm. So, as a sort of closing thought from both of you, I think that's almost all we have time for. But as a closing thought for you, the diverse there's a diversity of options. And the UK has developed an expertise in, in some of those forms of nuclear. And is that where you'd like to see most attention paid in the years to come that, in developing that expertise that we already have? Yeah, I think we've got to harness all the talent. So I think what will happen is that size will see company that's been created will move on and exist as a, an expert in how to build reactors because they'll have built two by then and they'll know they've got all the talent and all the engineering and, and the, the skills will be there. They can then move on to build whatever we decide to do next. Mm-hmm. I would hope that we might choose an HTR design as an advanced reactor and that company could do it. And then Rolls, actually, Rolls could play a role in just standardising the manufacturing because it it's actually might be that it's not their design that we want but just their manufacturing capability so they could be a kind of all talents pulling together to a solution scenario, which would be wonderful. And then we could start to export that technology to other countries that need it. So I'm quite hopeful. Uh, there's lots of things that could go wrong, obviously. And we just have to hope that the uh, the vision in, within government is moving at pace to get us to a decision. I think the worst thing sure. would be to just keep delaying and not make a decision. And Simon, what about you? As a closing thought, what would you like to see, hope to see next in the nuclear sector in the UK? I mean, I'm, me personally and Carbon Reef generally, we, we don't really go in for kind of hopes and expectations. I, I would say Brian, you set out like a hopeful case of what could happen. I, I think just looking back at how, how the, you know, the history of, of nuclear energy has played out in the UK, I would be more likely to set out a kind of slightly pessimistic, perhaps a more cynical take on what might happen, which is, you know, that the government will continue with kind of strong rhetorical support for nuclear. But, you know, the prospect of them taking a a strong set of decisions to support nuclear and, and you know, support the kind of optimistic vision that, that Bryony's suggested, that seems quite distant to me. 
you know, I think meanwhile we're going to see continued expansion of renewables and you know, perhaps a risk for, from the nuclear point of view that ministers, government beyond the current one see, see that as, as the way forward um, yeah, as continued cost reductions come, come forward. Obviously, there's big question marks about what what fills in the gaps in wind and solar. If it isn't, you know, if it isn't nuclear, is it is it gas for the carbon capture and storage, which is yet to to be sort of demonstrated at scale? Is it hydrogen peaking plants? We don't really know the answer to that. But I would say the potential for dither and delay, in those immortal words of Boris Johnson, is quite high when it comes to nuclear. So I think that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much to both of you for coming along and sharing your expertise. Do check out Carbon Brief if you want to read in more detail about some of those figures that Simon's been mentioning. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, then do also grab a copy of our December issue of Prospect, where you can read Bryony's essay about nuclear in full and her journey from campaigner against to supporter of. Or head to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. Thanks so much for tuning in and do listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.